0: I want to welcome you whether you're watching from a live stream or later in the week sometime or here live in our Brentwood campus. We're glad you are with us today, glad you joined us for worship. I was 17 years old, the first and only time that I ever went to the French Quarter. I had come to Christ at about age 15, so just about two years in the faith, and I had actually gone to New Orleans to take part in a kayaking clinic where we would go out and learn techniques about kayaking. And of all places, they were holding it in the cypress swamps, so it was sort of an interesting uh, trek to go on. And not knowing anyone there, the night before we embarked on our kayaking experience, we stayed in the Fontainebleau Hotel, and we walked the French Quarter. Um, As a 17-year-old, young believer in Christ, I will never forget the sights, sounds, smells, and images of walking that street. Um, Even in my very young faith, it just sort of reeked of this jaundiced depravity. The hawkers, the barkers, uh, things that were exposed that shouldn't be exposed, all that was going on. up. And here I was a minor, technically, and that didn't stop anything from happening. And it was all right in front of me. I could have done whatever I wanted to do with these strangers that I did not know very well. If you have never been, I would encourage you never to go. But in a sense, every street in life is a a line of opportunity of depravity. Every time we wake up in the morning, we have an invitation to sin. Temptation is all around us. As long as we live, we will live in a context where temptation will never end. So we are engaged in an unseen war. We have to own the personal side of that, that we are tempted because of our selfish sin nature but we also have an adversary. We also have an enemy who works overtime to seduce, to lure, to entice us, uh, to draw us into sin. It can be as simple as gossip and lying and cheating here and there around the margins. It can be, uh, we would think, a more major sin of immorality and so forth and so on, but it's all sin. Scripture defines it as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the boastful pride of life. As I've often said, the three umbrellas, money, sex, and power. You can probably put your uh, primary area of sin under one of those umbrellas, money, sex, or power, maybe under more than one at times. But we're drawn to, we have proclivity to, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, and the boastful pride of life. It never ends. Satan comes along and tempts us. He is called the tempter in Matthew chapter 4, verse 2. In Luke chapter 4, we have the temptation accounts where Jesus Christ goes after he's been baptized by the Holy Spirit, identified as God's son. He then goes out in the wilderness for 40 days to fast and to be tempted. And by all indications, that was not simply a four-time event that he's tempted, but I would argue probably during the entire duration of the 40 days, he is being tempted by Satan. Satan is real. He is in... He is a fallen angel. He was the highest of the angelic beings. With him, he took legions of angels and minions and other angelic beings that we touched on in the prior weeks. And this tempter uh, deals with Christ in very specific ways in the so-called temptation accounts. But it doesn't stop there because he tempts you and me as well. We own our own temptations where our sin nature lures us But Satan works alongside those temptations. Temptation in itself is not sin. But toying with temptation too long can lead us into sin. We fight. We resist. We try to be disciplined. We have accountability partners. All fine, well, and good. But unless we understand our position in Christ and what it means to be saved, sealed, secured in our salvation, and then how we then walk in that expression of faith We will always be in this cycle of of dealing with temptation, uh, giving in to sin. Uh, Maybe we stay in it for a while. Maybe we repent right away. Maybe we stay in it for a long while and we enjoy it for a while. And then we get guilty or convicted or shame builds up and then we come to our senses and we repent and we acknowledge and confess and we come out of it and then we're back in the temptation cycle. It goes on and on and on and on. Is that really how we're supposed to live the Christian life? There is no such thing as sinless perfection. We will not arrive one day in this human life, and we will no longer sin. The last time you will sin is the day you die. And until then, we will be caught in this struggle, and it will be part of the fabric of our sin nature in a fallen world, though we are saved and secured. Now, one way to live in this spiritual battle is not just this cycle that I think most Christians, most of us, experience. Another way to live in it is the way Paul's explaining it. The book of Ephesians has been the simple pronoun to be in Christ Jesus. In the first three chapters, he's developed this doctrine of what it means to have a saving relationship to be in him, that he died in your place, on your behalf, instead of you, that your sins have been completely forgiven. And if you trust in Christ and Christ alone, you're given a free gift called eternal life, called salvation. He forgives you of all of your sins, and the Father then looks down at you through the work of Christ, and sees a sinless, born-again individual. That is saving faith. Now, how do we live that? That's great doctrine. That's great, important theology. It's cement. How do we live in it? And in chapters 3, 4, and 5, and 6, he, four, five, six, he begins to expand, explain the practical applications of that, and he gives us this picture of armor that we're looking at today. If you have your Bible, open to Ephesians chapter 6. We also have the particular passage on the screen. As you turn your way there, I ask you the question, then, how do you resist temptation? How do you live in this spiritual conflict? How do you live in this cycle, as it were? Well, Paul's going to help us understand what it means to be in Christ's strength with this metaphor, this picture of the armor. In chapter 6, verse 10 of Ephesians, one verse I want to read, Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. He doesn't say be strong in the flesh, be super disciplined, all of which is good, uh, work harder, all of them are fine. He says be strong in the Lord, back to that in preposition, in the strength of his might. And now he's going to explain what that looks like. For those of you who are Bible students, you study the Bible in detail on your own, this is the eighth and last of Paul's long sentences in the book of Ephesians, the letter, and this is verses 14 to 20. as one long sentence in, in Greek New Testament. Uh, the translators of our English Bible help us a little bit with punctuation and so forth, but it is, uh, it's, it's both the... It's a wonderful feast for a Bible student, but it can also be a bit complicated, and so hopefully we can make it a little more understandable. I'm going to ask you to stand one last time, uh, and we're going to read from the screen. This is the Word of God, and we're instructed to pay attention to our public reading of Scripture. So let's read it well, read it loudly, read it clearly, read with me. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Thanks. You can take your seat. I break this into two points on two major verbs and they are seen in verse 14 and verse 17. The first one is to stand firm as the main verb and everything else is going to fall under that. And then if you look at the bottom of the screen verse 17 the word take. So those two verbs are the governing verbs of all this text we're going to look at. And we're going to look at it in two parts. So the first part is the urgent call to stand firm. Three times so far in this short chapter verse 11 Verse 13, and here in 14, he says to stand firm. If you use the New American Standard Bible, it's translated the same way each time for continuity. This operative word, has the the word of urgency comes behind it. The last one is an imperative, and Lloyd talked about it, was a command. So maybe you you command your your dog, sit, stay, come, whatever you do. And you expect that animal to obey you. That's the force of an imperative verb. Stand firm firm. That's how he begins this section. Now, it's interesting because when you think of a person putting on armor, and maybe you've watched the Lord of the Rings trilogy 10 or 12 times, uh, and you know what all these things look like in the way Hollywood depicts them. When When you think of putting on armor, you're going to what? You're going to go to battle. That's the image most of us would have in mind. But The way Paul's going to explain this armor is very different. It's a little bit off balance as we begin to read it, because we're told to stand firm. We're not told to fight, nor are we told to retreat. We're told to stand firm. So the first verbal force he gives when he paints this picture, this metaphor of the armor of God, is to stand firm, and the way he unpacks it then is by four participles. Very important note, this is God's armor, not the Christian's armor. It's often taught as the Christian's armor, and the Christian's supposed to put this armor on. And I'm not going to split hairs, I understand what they're saying, but technically this is the armor of God that we acquire and put on. So it's something the Christian has to muster up and build. It belongs to God. Don't forget, Paul would have a very uh, up close and personal view of the armor as he was in chains with Roman guards on more than one occasion. He spent a lot of time in Roman jails. So he knew well the first century, as did the readers of this letter in Ephesus, would know well what a Roman guard looked like. Remember, Rome is the occupying power of the day. They're the most powerful force on the planet of the day. And they occupied most of the places in the New Testament. They were the foreign occupiers who allowed those cultures to live under their governing. Well, how are we to stand firm? And in the four participles that follow, and I've underlined them on the screen so you can see them easily, are girded with truth, put on the gospel of peace, shod and uh, with a footwear, and taking, uh, excuse me, put on the breastplate of righteousness, shod with the gospel of peace, and taking up uh, the, uh, the spirit. So we're going to look at each one of these one at a time. First, let's look at girded with the truth. Uh, and again, the time of Paul's writing, they would have a very common picture. It's often thought of the belt with all the armor hung on, and that it's a possibility. But more than likely, this girding was a larger belt that actually was an apron. And it was, it was sort of the undergarment, but the important term here is, is the girding word, the tightening the belt. It's the idea of being secure in something. If you get on an airplane, they say uh, tighten the belt tight across your waist and most of us leave it you know like this big around us. We don't want it to be restrictive. When you get in your car you put a seatbelt on it has now the the shoulder harness is all part of it. And some of us actually take that shoulder harness and put it over our knee because we don't like it across our chest, right? Uh, That's not wearing it properly. Uh, So if you're in an accident, if it's tight and on you it's going to protect you. Uh, Some of you actually pay money. You go to places like Disney World and all these places, you pay money and you put your life in peril on these rides. You get on these rides, and they say, don't ride them if you have all these conditions. And people still get on them. And these, this bar comes down with neoprene on it, and it's not tight. It's like really loose around you. And that's going to go upside down and at inhumane velocities, and you're going to be nausea when you get off of it. And when it goes upside down or too fast, what do you do? You clench those bars as tight as possible because you're not strapped in. The picture of girding is that we have a confidence of something. Three lower back surgeries and one neck surgery. I had a brace for three of the four surgeries. And those braces, when they were given to me, they were tight. And they told me every time, this brace is not going to help you heal. This brace is to remind you of what we've done to you and to be careful that you don't bend or do things that you're not yet ready to do. And so it gives you a security, a sense of girding, of tightening your belt, we would say. Andrew Lincoln writes, Uh, truthfulness and moral integrity provide support and brace the believer. We're girded with truth. What's the word truth? Some believe it's the gospel, which is possible, but as the armor continues, we're going to see more about that. So I believe what the author is telling us is the truth that you believe in. Uh, The integrity of the soldier would be how confident he was when he put on that first apron that all the other armor was going to go on top of. And we're told, told to gird ourselves with truth. Secondly, to put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate, of course, covered the chest. Uh, there were metal plates that were worn over what was called a leather jerkin jacket. Think of a, like a car coat with no sleeves that came down about mid-calf. And then this leather uh, would then be uh, the comfort after the metal was put on top of it. Some of you know what a coat of mail is envisioned small, round rings of iron or, or steel, not steel in those days, iron or copper, and they would uh, sew them together basically like a fabric. If you saw Lord of the Rings, you saw Mithril, this mythical uh, armor that he wore. Uh, well, it's just a, it's a coat of mail. And as the Romans got more sophisticated, it was like a chain mesh that they wore, and it covered their front and their back because why? The chest is the most vulnerable part Because your heart is there. Your vital organs are there. And so it was to cover uh, the breastplate. In Greek, the word is thorax. Any of you in the medical world or PT world know what that means. It's basically from the neck to the diaphragm. It's called the thorax region. And so that's what the word was. You covered the thorax with this breastplate. Notice of righteousness. Now, righteousness is one of those Bible words that means everything. Therefore, it means nothing. God's righteous. What does that mean? Well, let me give you the thumbnail definition. In the Old Testament, righteousness means God always does the right thing in the right way in the right time. He will always be the judicious judge. Now, we know some things happen that are injustices, and we wait the end times, eschaton, where God will make all things right. He will be the righteous judge. How is the believer righteous? Two ways. One, we are in Christ's righteousness positionally. But we're also enjoined, we're taught to be righteous people. Simple. Do the right thing in the right way in the right time. A righteous person doesn't wait to do the right thing. A righteous person doesn't do end runs. A righteous person doesn't doesn't trick or deceive people. They're truthful. They get it out there. They do the right thing in the right way at the right time. So when God judges righteously, we expect a righteous judge. Wouldn't it be dream about a judge And those in the legal profession always doing the right thing. What a world it would be. That's the kind of God we have. And we are called as believers to be righteous, to live righteously. So we're to gird our loins with truth, and we're to cover our breastplate, our thorax, with righteousness. So we're getting a pattern here. The truth is what we believe about Christ, what we know about God's Word, we are now covered in this righteous breastplate we might put these together to say this is the soldier's integrity parent verb stand firm how do you do that first you gird yourself with the truth then you put on the breastplate of righteousness you do the right thing in the right way thirdly you shod your feet with the gospel of peace you shod your feet with the gospel of peace in again Paul's time Roman soldiers there were a variety of footwear depending on the soldier But the one in question probably wore a low half boot. The soles would be about three quarters of an inch thick of leather that was glued together. But more interestingly about this particular boot, it had hobnails that stuck to the bottom. In other words, think of a cleat. So they're to shod their feet with these thick leather shoes that allow them to stand firm in a position. Those who've played football or soccer, you know the value of having good cleats on the right turf, and you get good traction. I was a lineman in junior high school, and you want to have really good grips when you are on the ground, when you're going to hit somebody or they're going to knock you back. And so in the same standing firm, girded with truth, breastplate of righteousness, your feet are going to be shod with the gospel of peace. It makes a lot of Bible students and scholars scratch their heads. What does Paul mean? about the gospel of peace. There's all kinds of rabbit trails. And when I get to a part of the Bible where I get really uh, lost in the weeds with commentators, and I go, what in the world is this talking about? I always step back, and I look to try to look at the big picture. Sometimes I think we overthink stuff. I do. And I look at the big picture. What's Paul talking about in this whole section? The gospel is not going to war. That was the Crusaders. The gospel is the gospel of peace. It's a gospel that brings peace. So we're getting this different picture of armor. We're thinking about a person going into battle with a sword and shield. No, this person is standing firm, girded with truth, clothed with righteousness, shod, firmly planted with the gospel of peace. The gospel that brings peace. And then he continues taking up the shield of faith. This is a verbal action that's a little different, taking up. The others are participles. This one has a little more action behind it, picking something up that is intended to be used. This is the only time this word occurs in the New Testament for this particular shield. There were two kinds of shield, most common, there were many, but two most common was a round, about two and a half foot shield, and then there was an oblong one, and there's a word play in Greek. It's it's like the word for door. It sounds like the same word in Greek for door. And it was about two and a half feet wide and It could be as up as four and a half feet, a little bit longer. And the top and bottom of the shield had metal. Later on, it was iron on the top and bottom so that when it was put on the ground and disabused, it would withstand it. It was made of wood and leather and canvas materials. Those shields were soaked in water because as we read in this passage, the fiery darts that are going to come at this shield are going to be extinguished. In that picture, in that time, they were very common. They they would see this gear around them. They would see Roman soldiers. They knew what these things were like. In history, the Roman forces were uh, the most intimidating power on the planet. And one of the things they did with these shields is where where we got the word flanks comes from this. They would put those wide, tall shields side by side as the army would come forward. And it was impenetrable. So the enemy would what? pitch and tar on arrows and darts and throw and shoot them at those shields, trying to burn the soldier to burn the shield. It's been soaked in water. It's not going to burn. It's made of a material that absorbs water. So they were pretty smart. On the front of the shield was called a boss. Think of a big bowl on the front of it, right in the middle of it. And if you think of crusaders period, they had like a cross on the front, a banding, and it had that boss on the front what that served was a number of functions one if you're in a battle with a flat board doesn't do you a lot of good but if you got a big bulbous piece of metal on the front you can hit your opponent with it secondly it allows you a place to put your hand to put a a, a way to arm it on the inside and so it serves as a defensive weapon as an offensive weapon but we're to take this shield and here it's called a faith why faith Each one of them, each one of the participles has a, 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 um, is attributed to an aspect of our faith, our truth, our righteousness, the gospel, and now faith. Because the shield is a great picture of what it means to believe something. I trust in this. I believe this is going to extinguish the dart when it comes. And I can stand behind it without fear. That's a really good picture of faith in the armor. Harold Honer writes, the metaphor, la- metaphorical language depicts a shield of resolute faith that protects a believer from every spiritual harm aimed at them from the evil one. It not only stops the fiery weapons of attack, but actually extinguishes them, rendering them useless. This sounds better than temptation, giving into sin, sin, staying in sin, for a short while, long while, repenting, shame, guilt, sorrow, coming back if I'm girded with truth, if I'm covered with righteousness and integrity, if my feet are shod with the gospel of peace, why I'm here is to bring the gospel to others. And I walk with this thing in front of me called faith. It begins to give a picture, a metaphor for the believer to put some handles together. This is what it looks like to stand firm in Christ and not just the sin cycle that we're engaged in. Again, we don't fight like we're engaging an enemy. There's a spiritual warfare that's going on, we might say, and we are impacted and influenced by that warfare, but we're not to attack it, we're not to fight it, we're not to fight the foes, we're to stand firm, Paul writes. Well, we have this urgent call to stand firm, girded with truth, put on the breastplate of righteousness, feet shod with the gospel of peace, and then taking up the shield of faith. And now Paul instructs verse 17, take, here's the other verb, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So now we have an urgent command to take, to do something. The helmet and sword were the last two articles a Roman soldier would put on. The helmet was heavy and mostly it was hot. It also would limit their vision a little bit. So it was the last thing that you put on. You might The word you could almost say is where he says take the helmet. It's the idea of grab it. The urgency is grab it and put it on at the last minute possible. You want to wait to put it on. It was made of um, a um, bronze material over an iron cap. Underneath the iron cap, they put canvas or a leather to make it a little more comfortable on the soldier's head. Later on, they developed them where they had a little bit of a, a back to protect the neck. They came out with flanks on the side. They were like uh, hinges of, of metal with a strap underneath. They put bridges and brows on them so that if a foe came with a large sword, it wouldn't split the helmet. It would deflect the helmet. And if you look at these things, they found them in antiquity. There's, there's plenty of... Archaeological digs that reveal Roman uh, armor, so it gives you a good picture of it. the The designs are not just the literal designs. Again, Isaiah fifty nine seventeen. He put on righteousness like a breastplate, and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put garments of vengeance for clothing, and wrapped himself in zeal as a mantle. So we have the messianic allusions in Isaiah 59. And here Paul uses them for a modern day, for that audience, a modern day, they would all know what a Roman soldier looked like. The last one is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This is the final item that's grabbed, and it's the only offensive weapon. Everything else so far has been defensive. Everything else has been to put him in a position or a posture to stand firm. This is the first one that's offensive. And again, if you think of Lord of the Rings, you think of these long wielding swords where these giants are fighting. Uh, There were two primary swords in the Roman uh, armory. There was the long fighting sword and there was a short scabbard type sword. It was double edged. It was about two feet long. In other words, it was an up close and personal weapon. And I think it's important that Paul chose very deliberately this word, no mistake about it, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word, because it is personal, the sword is the word of God. Keep in mind, this one offensive weapon, and it's the one thing that we use with everything else as we're standing firm. We're not fighting this enemy. We're using the word of God as an offensive weapon, like a sword. And that will take us back to the temptation accounts. Um, Satan is going to attack. We may not think a lot about Satan. We may sort of minimize him in the West. We're smarter. We're brighter than those cultures that worry about spirits and demons and so forth and so on. And then there's those that over-spiritualize and uh, over-emphasize this. And again, I warn, it's both and. I think we have enough of our selfish sin nature to deal with. But Satan will come along because he's smarter than you and me. He's wiser than you and me. He's more shrewd than you and me. And he can certainly manipulate and lure us into things. We still have the option to give in to temptation or not, but this is the warfare that we're a part of. As we think about spiritual warfare in a broader picture, these things come and go. Uh, perhaps you've lived through the time when the charismatic issues were really big and everybody was dividing and talking about those or the the gifts all took the gift analysis and what's your spiritual gift and then we had agape groups and these things all cycle prophecy conferences come and go and they will all continue to to come and go spiritual warfare is kind of it's not the hot topic today in the 80s and 90s it certainly was uh lloyd referred to frank peretti last week weekend uh Look at chapter six, verse 12. Go up a verse and where, before we begin and look at the context again. "Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places." Each of those terms has to do with a realm that we can't see. Each of those has to do with a realm where Some of Satan's legions are at work, and the ancients would draw beautiful pictures and art renderings of these different levels where you had the the earth, and then you had bands around it, and some of those bands would have where the demonic realm existed, and the angelic realm carried out spiritual warfare. And some of these authors who wrote these fictitious novels gave us great caricatures of those. Um, I don't think it's a geographic time-space issue. They are everywhere. The angelic realm, the spiritual realm, the heavenly places is not confined to the way we look at time and space, the way we look at matter. They're beyond that, and there is a spiritual war that is going on. A way that helps me understand the spiritual warfare idea in Scripture is that we are in a war, but you and I are not at war. We are in a war. In no small part, our sin nature perpetuates that. We are in a war in no small part because the demonic realm is after us. The demonic realm, his job, his role is to keep men and women from coming to Christ. And once men and women come to Christ, he is the accuser of the brethren, Scripture calls him. He constantly accuses you and me before Christ. Just as Jesus is the constant intercessor on our behalf, Satan is the constant accuser of the brethren. That's his role after his fall. So we are in a war, but we're not at war. So how do we stand in the onslaught of temptation? Our own making, as well as that when these spiritual aspects come in to fight us. We have to understand that we're in Christ. And Paul gives us a practical way to say we're in this armor. And these pieces of this armor come together, girded with truth our integrity, the righteousness that covers that. We have our feet shod with the gospel of peace that brings good news. We have a shield that is faithful. We can depend on the word of God, and we put a helmet of salvation that protects our head. By the way, there's two kinds of deliverance. There's the eternal deliverance, but there's also a temporal one, right? When you're saved from an accident, you're saved from the sea. The word is used the same way in the Bible. So the helmet of salvation talks about a temporal one, and then you have the sword of of the spirit, which is the word of God. Those are, that's how we stand in this battle of temptation that we live in. Will we give in or not to sin? How successful will we be over time? Uh, When I was in um, junior high, I played football for a couple of years, And uh, we grew up in Houston, Texas during those years. And Houston, Texas, two-a-days in August were—you think it's humid out there today? This is nothing. Uh, It was miserable. We started at 6 a.m. We had a 6 to 8 morning practice and then a 4 to 6 practice in the afternoon. That was the the shadow of the hour of death, 4 to 6. It was so hot. It was so humid. And after the first couple of days, you're just in your shorts and your t-shirt and your cleats. And then they issued helmets and shoulder pads and they would come and fit them. They had the guys came and it was pretty sophisticated, even that day. And we had our helmets that were, the padding was taken out and adjusted and it was fit properly and the shoulder pads were fitting and numbered. And so you got your equipment. And then the rest of the practices we did for a long time, two days, were just in helmets and shoulder pads. And, um, after we had gotten accustomed to having this thing, I mean, you're already sweating incredibly and you put a helmet on, it's all the worse. And, um, and now you're, you know, pushing sleds and scrimmaging and trying to kill some guy. And, uh, yes, it's fun and, uh, sweating like crazy. And after a while, the the coach lines us up and he's getting us accustomed to our equipment. And I was the tallest kid on the team, small team. And, um, he comes over and he he had a nickname, which I won't reveal, but he called me something and, um, he, he came up and he hit me on the side of the helmet. I mean, really hard. He goes, does that hurt easily? And, um, of course, if it did or didn't, I was going to say no. And he hit me on their side of it and he hit me on the shoulder pads. and He smacked me around and it, it was, I mean, it was, you were being hit, but it didn't hurt. And he went down the line and did it to a lot of us, but he mostly did it to me. And my job from then on was pushing that sled up and down the field. That's what I did for two years. It was a lot of fun. Um, What was he showing us? If you have that helmet on and you're wearing your pads right, you can hit somebody and it won't hurt you. And your job is to go out there and hit somebody. Your job is to make a hole. Your job is to sack quarterback. Your job is to slow that thing down. I was a defensive lineman, loved it. And uh, my job was to make a hole and try to hit a runner or sack a quarterback. And if you sacked a quarterback, he would buy you a bunch of whoppers. It was a great deal. Um, That was the way he coached. Um, And after a while, as you train and you get strong and you get in shape, you don't even think about the armor because you live in it. And you know what you can do in it, what you can get away with. As a believer in Christ, you wouldn't wear shoulder pads and helmets or shields, but we have this metaphor of being girded with truth, having a breastplate of righteousness, the integrity of who we are in Christ. Our feet are planted, hobnailed in the ground with the gospel of peace. We've got a shield of faith that helps us because the enemy is going to attack us. Our own temptations are going to confound that. You put a helmet of salvation on to protect your head, and the way you defend offensively is what the word. If Jesus the Christ is tempted in the wilderness, after he's been acknowledged as the Son of God, the one and only Son of God, and for 40 days he's fast, he fasts and is tempted in the wilderness, each time Satan comes after him, he does what? He recites back, it is written. It is written. It is written. It's the one offensive weapon we have. You ever grow up in a church that had sword drills? Did you bring your sword? That's what Sunday school teaches. Did you bring your sword? D.L. Moody had some comments about a mutilated sword wasn't any good. You needed a good sword. Um, It's the big duh. This is your sword. This is your one offensive weapon is his word. It's not accountability groups, it's not your favorite author, it's not your favorite speaker, your favorite blogger, your favorite preacher that you watch, it's not any of those things, it's the word. Now, all those are fine and good, but it's not this. Nothing takes the place of it is written. Man does not live by bread alone, and by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Is written. It is written. What 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 do you say when you're tempted? What do you know? about the word when that temptation comes. And if you don't know the word, it's pretty impossible to have any offensive response when the temptation comes. Once you're accustomed to it, it's like getting hit in the head of a football helmet. It's no big deal. You can stand the blow. I don't think Jesus intended you and me to live in a vicious cycle of being tempted and discouraged and frustrated and then give in to sin, make excuses for our sin, sin because everybody else sins, and then when we feel bad enough, ask for repentance and, and, repent and ask for forgiveness and grovel and feel some shame, and then over time kind of come out of it only to do it again. I just don't think that's an abundant life. So how do we break that cycle? Well, you're never going to not sin. But I do believe the closer we walk with him, the closer we know his word, the picture is beautiful, girded with truth, breastplate of righteousness, feet shod with the gospel of peace, a, a, a shield of faith, a helmet of salvation, and an offensive sword that is the Word of God. That is a position for the believer to withstand temptation. It's a position to withstand the attacks of the world. It's a position where you can have peace no matter what's going on around you. And the closer you walk with Christ, the less the world and the devil and the minions will dismantle you. That's why I go back high level on that gospel of peace. Because when bad things happen, and they will until we die, how will you respond? Will you blame? Will you be afraid? Will you run and hide? Will you dive into sin more deeply? None of those strategies work, but this one does because you have a Savior who loves you, who died in your place on your behalf instead of you, and he intercedes for you constantly that you can withstand these temptations. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that your word is true no matter what our experience may try to tell us. We thank you that we have this book in every shape and form available to us. Help us to be motivated. It's a new semester. It's a new start. It's a new day. Can we open this first before the email and the texting and the social media take over our lives? Can we spend a few minutes with you girding ourselves with truth, wrapping ourselves with righteousness, doing the right thing in the right way? putting on shoes that give us the reminder of the gospel of peace that we bring, standing behind a shield of faith that we trust and believe in you, a helmet of salvation and a sword that is your very word. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.